0: It's behind the headlines on wliw I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish uh, the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. Uh, today, filling in for Bill Sutton uh, is uh, my co-host, Brendan O'Reilly. He is the features editor for the Express News Group. Good morning, Brendan. Thanks for filling in. Good morning, Joe. Good to have you here. And uh, with us today are a couple of regulars Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. And Beth Young, who is the editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. And we have to ask Beth, you're feeling better now, right? Yeah, all good. Good. And it just (laughs) demonstrates that getting the vaccine is maybe a good idea, huh? Booster on Sunday. There you go. Good to hear. So, yeah, we probably should start with our more or less weekly conversation about uh, COVID. Uh, the new development, of course, is that the Omicron variant is now in the United States. And then very quickly, uh, it has arrived in New York State. And we found out on Thursday that it's actually one of the cases in New York State is in Suffolk County. Uh Denise, what uh, the other thing to me that that this week that that troubled me was I believe that the positivity rate in Suffolk County went above five percent for the first time in a while, and that's alarming. That's it's it's starting to go back up again uh, to levels that we haven't seen for a while, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen in Suffolk County uh, the test percent positive rate reach. Uh, over six percent, six and a half. Yeah, there was one, one day that was yeah. seven. I
2: think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right, Beth. Um, so, you know, I mean, that can vary depending on the number of tests that are given to. But um, testing, you know, if it's if if they're low numbers, like on a weekend or holiday, sometimes the percent positives can be higher. But um, that's why you look at those seven day averages too. Uh, but yeah, they're definitely uh, creeping up. You know, you you recall maybe anyway, when we had to last talked two weeks ago, um, I was saying that I was doing like an analysis um, of, you know, where we stand now versus a year ago. Right. And um, so I'm still I'm still working on that because things keep changing. Um, but I'm just about finished. And it's really actually pretty striking. Uh, you know, the contrast is, um, you know, so I'm doing I'm doing an analysis of cases in. You know, since uh, since Halloween, say, and what happened last winter during the surge and how the table is really without this new variant. And who knows what that brings, but uh, how the table is really set for a repeat of last winter's uh, surge, which was not a a healthy time in Suffolk County. I mean, there were a lot of new cases and there were quite a a lot of deaths as well. So I'm hoping to get that that actually posted today. Um, But, um, you know, it's not something we want to do over, basically, but it looks like we're ready to to do that. And that's that's with Delta. That's never mind this Omicron or is it Omicron? Um, I'm not sure. I'm going
0: I'm going with Omicron. But
1: the the state, the state commissioner called it Omicron yesterday. Uh,
2: That's wrong. He's been in the laboratory too long. I've been saying
3: Omicron. Omicron. Omicron we'll, go yeah. with, we'll go with
0: Omicron here. <laughs> so, so Beth, I'm assuming that you know none of us are are uh, experts on this, but I'm guessing that the Thanksgiving uh, holiday probably has something to do with the the continuing rise. It got a lot of people together in small, tight places, and all you need is one person who's who's got the yeah. virus, and suddenly you have a bunch of cases.
2: Yeah, and really, the worst of it last winter was you know the couple of weeks after Christmas, which. You know, yeah. you, you can hold off getting together on Thanksgiving, but Christmas is a little bit more difficult for people. Um, but yeah, I think there was one day this past week where there were six deaths in Suffolk,
1: which yeah. kind
2: of jumped out at me because you know it, it's been a it's been a while since you know the death the death rate is a lagging indicator. It's been a while since it was that high. I mean, it's not that high every day, but that's a striking number. Um, I mean, when this first happened, the first day we had six deaths, we were horrified, and now it's mm-hmm. a matter of course. Yeah, well, we get a I thousand, mean, we've been
1: through.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say we've been through period,
1: periods where you get like you know, multi, hundreds of deaths a day. Um, we we reached that point more over a hundred deaths in, in Suffolk last year. I mean, yeah. um, I was looking at how the first three brutal months of this pandemic, March twelfth, when we first right, and through the end of May uh, claimed 1,909 lives in Suffolk County. Um, last winter surge from December 1st to April 30th, because again, that lag indicator, right? Um, 1331 residents died. So, you know, it's, um, it, it was not a good time and it's not something we, we want to repeat, but it looks like, you know, we're on our way. And that's, again, without this new variant and whatever that may bring. I mean, at, at this point, nobody really and, knows.
0: Denise, those numbers are, that was New York state numbers? County.
1: Those are those are numbers on the county level that the, the Suffolk County Department of Health Services publishes every day. Um, okay. Here and there, there's a date that's missed. They get the data from the state, like they're, you know, it's a, it's state data. That, that they then can
0: can you, publish
2: and they do. But you're talking county.
0: about a, the number of deaths in Suffolk County. Suffolk that's, County, it's yeah.
2: about 3,700 at this point. total.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and the the numbers right now nationally are still in the neighborhood of a thousand deaths a day, right? There's, the, uh, I think they're down a little bit below that, but um, they've still been fairly close to that number.
2: Yeah,
1: I
0: think yeah, so I fun. think
2: that's true. Yeah. So so uh, and we, yeah, and we are you know. I don't know a lot about. I mean, when you get your PCR test or or even the rapid test, they're they're not really testing the variants on everybody. No. Yeah, I don't think so. You don't like know if you if yeah. you had it recently. It you know they're saying there actually is likely community spread in New York City. Yeah. Um, yeah and, that's, likely, and we you know, don't.
1: Yeah, it's likely so community we, spread everywhere that you hear a case. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's the thing, and Brendan, I w- I wanted to to bring you in the the Omicron variant. We don't know much about it so far, but but um, the early reports are that it may be a lot more uh, infectious. Uh, you may be able to spread it a lot easier uh, because of the number of mutations, uh, and and we don't really know much about whether it's as serious a condition um, if you're infected. I think that's one of the big questions right now. I don't know that there have been any deaths in America attributed to the Omicron variant.
3: I think uh, because we've only found out about cases now and because deaths generally lag diagnosis by at least two weeks, if not longer, it is going to be some time before we can attribute any deaths to the Omicron variant. As you mentioned, the mutations, there's just so many of them compared to what they've seen with other variants. And, you know, there are variants that mutate, but they just don't appear to be very uh, easily transmissible or they don't appear to be any more deadly than existing variants that are in circulation. So we just never hear about them. At one point, there was the the MU variant, MU. And I was expecting that to be the next variant of concern, and then it just kind of went away because it just ended up not being a real threat compared to what was already in circulation. With Omicron, not only is it likely going to outsmart our vaccines to some degree, uh, it may also infect people more efficiently, regardless of whether they're vaccinated or not. The upside is it's potentially not as deadly as the Delta variant. So... If you had to choose between getting the Delta variant and getting the Omicron variant, you would want the Omicron variant, but safer doesn't mean safe, and less bad doesn't mean good. It's still something you don't want. It's still something you want to be vaccinated against. Because we have different vaccines in the the United States that are predominant compared to other countries, we really need to know what the effect of this variant is going to be in our country, as opposed to what it's like in South Africa, where maybe they're not using J&J, Moderna, Pfizer as their only three approved vaccines like we are, and maybe they're not on their second shot, or maybe they're not on their booster. We really need to see what's going to happen here when people are on the booster. Uh, As Beth kind of attested to before, when you are vaccinated, your symptoms are much less severe, you have much less chance of being hospitalized, and you have a far, far less chance of death. So even though vaccines aren't perfect, even though there are breakthrough infections, reducing the severity of your infection is really the goal here because you you can't guarantee never getting infected ever, especially with a variant like this.
0: You know, there's a very small silver lining here. I read an article um, this week in The Atlantic that talks about the fact that if Omicron, if, and there's a lot of ifs here, we don't really know yet, but if Omicron is more infectious in that it can be spread easily, but it becomes a less severe disease and people are not dying from it, this may actually be a good thing that that it can spread more antibodies uh, and and maybe crowd out the more dangerous variants like Delta. Um, it may not be all bad news with Omicron. We just don't know yet. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by how quickly this – I mean, it just demonstrates the global nature of society um, mm-hmm. that – The first cases were in, in Southern Africa and it took what, I mean, the the thing is it's been here for at least uh, a week and a half, two weeks and spreading that whole time. It's just that all the numbers, Denise, you've, you've seen this all along. You talk about the lag. There's always a lag. And when we learned about the first case in California, that was actually a gentleman who came back from Southern Africa a week earlier and, and, um, you know, wasn't symptomatic at the time. So none of these numbers are current in the sense of everything is sort of a couple of weeks behind.
1: I think that's correct. And I think that um, you know what they're doing now is the, the scientists are going back and and sequencing some like samples of uh, you know sequencing virus samples prior to the you know knowledge of this variant to see if if it was here. Um, yeah. we're still sequencing, I think only like 15% nationally of, of, virus samples. Uh, New York, I, uh, according to, uh, the COVID tracker website is sequencing like, um, 3% yeah. of, and, and, according to the governor, she said yesterday that's done like randomly. They take random samples to, from all over the state, different regions, um, You know, so, I mean, yeah, chances are just like the original version of this virus. It was here before we knew it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's interesting. I mean, if it's if it's less severe, it could provide some sort of like natural inoculation. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. again, that's just speculation. I think the one thing that we can say for sure at this point is that, you know, the w- we, we need to focus on getting the world vaccinated. I mean, we could be double and triple vaccinated here, you know, for or some portion of us anyway. But as long as this virus is circulating widely in areas that are, you know, have very low vaccination rates, um, it's going to keep mutating. And viruses, you know, the, the, the stronger survive and the stronger virus is the one that does the most damage to its host. You know, I mean, that's what it does. So. Um, we, you know, it's got to be addressed globally like that. And I don't think there's much appetite really to do that, it seems.
3: One of the theories of the Omicron variant is that it may have survived in one immunocompromised person for yeah. quite a while, which is what gave it the opportunity to create so many mutations. Yeah.
2: Wow.
3: Well, uh, well, yeah. And that's, I mean,
0: I, I think one of the one of the challenges we have now is there's so much just exhaustion over the topic and and yeah. you know it, at this point i don't know how much more you can make the case i feel like people who were going to be vaccinated have been vaccinated and and we we may have reached the limit of what we're going to get in america but as you say we're we're not going to we're not going to crush this thing up beth yeah. i'm wondering how this affects um holiday plans for people or does it i mean you know do you i mean do you have plans to get the I, I have plans to travel at the holidays and i'm nervous mm-hmm. uh, and i'm really concerned about whether that's a smart thing to do or not um are you are you,
2: wonder, are you tra- tra- traveling domestically or yeah,
0: yeah just just going back home to visit friends and family that i that i usually only see once or twice a year um and and didn't see you know, through the pandemic. And and my thinking is, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, I think I think I'm perfectly safe. But who, who wants to take the chance? Now I worry about being the one who may bring the virus in, you know, the Omicron virus, you know, who knows, I might be the guy who brings it into Pennsylvania. And I don't want to do that.
2: Right. We won't tell on you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wonder.
2: How yeah, it's going
0: to, I don't I, know that people are going to cancel plans, but it but it's on everybody's mind. Get, get
3: a test before you leave.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's very actually, easy to get uh, um, a, a rapid test, and uh, and they have the take home tests. They're a little. They're not as super easy to find, and you do have to pay for them. But I I think that's. I think it's going to be covered by insurance or. Was talk? Reimbursable. yeah, I heard, yeah. Re- reimbursable. I heard that, so that, yeah. if you want to be reimbursed, I mean, it's like twenty or thirty bucks for the take-home version. Um I mean, I, I would definitely, you know, if you're concerned about any of any of the people that you're you're spending the holidays with, not being up to fighting COVID, I would definitely get tested before you visit them. Um, I mean, we
0: That's a great idea. We were
2: planning Thanksgiving for the first time, you know, and, and you know, half our family had been sick two weeks before and we were thinking, well, because we just got over it, it's probably safer now than, than, um, than it would have been if we hadn't had it. But it, it was a very, I mean, we were all wearing masks at Thanksgiving and kind of nervous. Um, and Christmas is going to be worse because we'll be further out from from having gotten it, and uh, and it's possible we had Omicron. I mean, the, the week that we got sick, a bunch of people got sick out here, and mm-hmm. it was very strange. Um,
0: and that's what I'm saying. We don't really know. Yeah. We 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 may find out in another week or yeah. two that that Omicron is all over Suffolk County. It's hard to say. So, yeah. but I I think it's important to keep this in perspective too. That that I think there can be a level of panic when you hear something like that. But I I think it's important to sort of focus on, you know, defeating a virus is complicated and sometimes things that sound bad may actually turn out to be uh, better in the long run for getting past this ultimately. So um, this is changing. I mean, it's amazing to me how long this story is going on and changing every day and you really need to stay informed. And by all accounts, by the way, um, I had heard early on that when the Omicron variant was identified, that once they had it identified, it would probably take about 100 days to get uh, a booster that would be more effective against that variant. So I would assume that we're talking about uh, February, March. But every medical expert I've heard has said, get the booster now. Don't wait it's still more beneficial to have the current booster than than to think well i'll just wait for the omicron booster don't do that
1: especially going into the winter yeah because delta is surging delta is still surging and you know the numbers that are going up are probably driven at least as of as of the end of november they were driven by delta according to the state Uh, you know i mean certainly there could have been on that you know undetected cases of this variant here but you know, what we do know is that Delta has surged and has and, you know, is responsible as of then for they thought 100 percent of the cases in New York state. I mean, mm-hmm. I, when you look at the vaccination rates, though, I mean, yeah, people should get boosted. People should get vaccinated. There are some really shockingly low rates of vaccination in Suffolk County. There are 10 Hamlets that are 60 percent or less Um Riches was the lowest of fifty percent. Mastic Beach fifty two, Shirley fifty three. I was looking at you know I look at the numbers on the town numbers that are reported by the the county uh, by town every every day, and you know there's really a big difference in the increase uh, in the western towns versus the eastern towns. Um, Riverhead kind of is in the middle, you know, but but um, and and this is why I mean you know they have these very low vaccination rates. Largely in the, the the hamlets of the five western towns, um, and what people what people should
0: understand is the nature of viruses is if there's a pocket of unvaccinated people, one case yeah. that gets into that pocket is going to spread quickly, and you're going to have a lot of cases, and that means more potential breakthrough cases for people who are vaccinated. Yeah. You can tamp this thing down, and it just takes an ember to to sort of reignite and and That's why we're struggling to get this thing. Uh, People say, "Oh, everybody's vaccinated. Why are we still having these issues?" Well, viruses want to live, and they they are going to do whatever they can to survive, and they're going to change to do that. And the way we stop that is to get vaccinated. So we just encourage everybody to stay on top of that. And
2: you know that there are very young people who can't be vaccinated, who we're all going to be spending a lot of time with around the holidays. I mean
0: absolutely that's
2: a really that was a really big wake up call for me because i i didn't really think oh you know little kids are wonderful you want to hang out with them yeah they are and and <laughs> and they absolutely are you don't want to get them sick and you don't want them to get you sick i'll
0: yeah. be interested to see if the uh the kids who are getting vaccinated um now if that starts to have an effect and again i think there's sort of a delayed effect yeah um I think we probably won't see the the benefits of that for a little while.
3: Well, we also need to think about masking again, because every place I go now, with rare exception, masks are, uh, uh, masks are optional as long as you are vaccinated. And we've gotten really relaxed on that. And of course, nobody's checking. It's completely voluntary to wear your mask now, even though. Allegedly, it's mandatory that you wear your mask if you're unvaccinated. And for people who have had their two Pfizer shots and it's been six months, technically they're vaccinated. But really, until they get their booster, technically they're not because of the waning effectiveness. So we're at the point we're heading into winter. We really have to think about masking up everywhere we go.
2: Yeah.
3: You know,
0: I was in Home Depot in Riverhead the other day and I was waiting in line uh, for customer service and a woman in front of me. Uh, looked back at me and I had my mask on. She didn't. Um, And she glared at me and then turned and whispered something to her husband. So I'm left to wonder whether she doesn't believe in masks and is making fun of me for wearing a mask. Does she think I'm unvaccinated (laughs) and she's angry at me for being unvaccinated when I'm just wearing a mask because I'm being extra careful or it may have been the fact that I had on an Iggy Pop t-shirt. Maybe she didn't like Iggy Pop. I don't know what, I'm not sure why she was angry with me, but we have all of these ambiguities now in, in today's life because of this, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, We bring together award-winning journalists from throughout the East End to talk about the headlines, do a little bit of a deeper dive. Uh, My co-host today is Brendan O'Reilly, who is the Features Editor of the Express News Group. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the Executive Editor of the Express News Group. And our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. So, Denise, I want to talk about a couple of stories that demonstrate that local journalists really can make a difference in important ways. And I want to talk about your story. And we spoke about it on the show uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it was regarding campaign contributions uh, involving the Riverhead town supervisor in the the most recent campaign. Um, There was some action this week that I think we can say safely is directly a result of the light you shined on that, right?
1: Well, not according to her campaign treasurer. (laughs) 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 but. You know, we we um, in in looking carefully at the campaign finance reports of all the candidates, not just that candidate. Um, although her fundraising ability far eclipsed everyone else's, um, and we saw a lot of contributions coming in from out of town, even out of state, um, and um, so we looked a little a little more closely, but. Um, it, there were, you know, there are campaign contribution limits that are set by state law. Candidates have limits depending on uh, the limits are set according to uh, voters in the in the uh, municipality or the district that they're seeking election to. And um, this particular candidate, the incumbent supervisor, uh, who was running for re-election, had taken a bunch of uh, contributions that exceeded the. Um, her the candidate election you know the campaign limit for for this cycle for the campaign cycle because it starts uh the day after election day the last time this office was elected which was uh in this case november 6th 2019 and continues through election day this year this year so that that's the 2021 campaign cycle and so it's cumulative um there are some types, I mean, every individual and in business has they have their own campaign contribution limits. Um, and that's a court that's what that entity or person can contribute to all, you know all candidates for office. And um, it was very clear that uh, a limit for a corporation or an LLC was is five thousand dollars that that's that in entity's limit. Um, and, um, the limit for a candidate for office in Riverhead town was $1,185 from any given entity or individual, um, other than a family member. Um, and so we, you know, had a spreadsheet with all of the ones that were over the limit and asked about it. And, um, the questions were not appreciated to say the least. And, um, we reported that, (laughs) But um, we just it was the the candidate really didn't want to talk about it at all and punted to her uh, campaign treasurer, who is also her campaign manager, who is also her husband. And um, he really didn't want to talk about it either. But they were insistent that. The corporation that they could take up to $5,000 from a corporation. And I was like, no, that's the corporation's limit. That's not yours. And we talked to the County Board of Elections commissioners. We talked to the State Board of Elections. And here it says it right in this campaign finance handbook that you can download from the State Board of Elections website. Um, anyway, got nowhere with that. Um, but we reported on it. And um, so the The final report for this uh, campaign period, for this uh, election, was the 27-day post-general report that was due um, to be filed uh, the 29th of November. And that showed that, in fact, they refunded nearly all of the campaign contributions that exceeded the $1,185 limit. Um, When we contacted them for comment, they uh the campaign treasurer said well we we were keeping we were keeping the, you know the law we 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 had the, our eye on the law right along and we you know like he doubled down on that he was never intended to violate and i mean technically it's not an excess contribution until election day so they can't be prosecuted for that because there are penalties and fines um attached attached to these violations um
0: that's what's what's interesting to me though is that that this is all about transparency, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if if those those records were out in uh full view and somebody has to look at them and make people aware of what's in them, but once you get to that it really is just a numbers game, right? Okay. It's it's fairly simple to say this is the limit and and these are the rules. And if you don't have that transparency, it's important. It's, it's like the tree falling in a forest. You've got to have somebody who's actually looking. Yeah, There's a transparency that happens, but somebody actually has to look so, at those papers. I, also, the paper the, I mean, the cool
1: thing too, is that they just this year um, launched a new uh, system and a new website, the, the New York State Board of Elections. And uh, so it's a database website. In the past, when you had to literally, you had to literally download a PDF of um, a candidate's report that was filed. Now it's it's database, and you can search by contributor name. You can search by, by recipient name. You can search all contributions to a particular candidate over, you know, since they first uploaded the the data. I forget what data goes back to, but like two thousand and seven. Um, That's all online now. And you can also, and this is the really cool part, you can down, I'm such a geek, my daughter did this to me. You can download the (laughs) CSV file and uh, then, you know, and that's, import that information into a spreadsheet and you have a spreadsheet of everything, you know, right on your own computer and you don't have to do all the different searches every time. So you can sort them and, you know, and why not. So uh, it's very, it's it's important to point out.
0: Anybody can, do, Anybody this. can this is, do this. This is not just journalists. Yeah. This is public, public access. But Brendan, this this comes down to uh, our jobs as watchdogs, right? We we're the ones that are supposed to be doing this for people and keeping an eye on. And I think Denise did a real public service in in parsing those numbers the
1: way and, she did. And Alec Alec Lewis was a big part of this. Our new reporter, um, he really dug hmm. down, dug into it, and and uh, culled all the numbers. And um, I, you know, we. You know, like you kind of check each other, too. You know, we did things separately and then compared our notes and, you know, um, because it is it is a little cumbersome. It is very tedious. And, um, you know, the, the website doesn't necessarily always function up to snuff. They're like they're stalls and, you know, whatever it has errors and whatnot. But there's um, two kinds of people.
3: that's kind this. of our guy. And uh, the one kind of people is partisan people who are doing it to embarrass their political opponents mm. and then you have journalists who are doing it to just embarrass everybody uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know embarrass isn't really Equal the best word but yeah um, because when we report on people's campaign donations you know you don't just report on what one party did you report on what both parties did and if you find that one party engaged in malfeasance then that's the party that's the bolder headline and Fortunately, we have transparency laws in this state and in this country that when you're a candidate for office either statewide or federally, you do have to disclose these things. It is a bit unfortunate that on the village level and the town level or well, at least the village level, some of these things are just voluntary. They're not obligated to upload all of their campaign donations and their campaign spending into the New York State database. They still have to keep it, they still need to make it available. But in many villages, you would have to go to that specific village to get it and get these documents that could even be handwritten to satisfy the reporting requirements. Whereas for a statewide office, you can go on the New York State elections website and search everybody. And for federal office, you can go on the federal website and search everybody. And it makes it a lot easier to keep tabs on where our politicians are getting their money from.
0: Yeah,
3: And we've seen
0: locally on the South that there's more money flowing into the village races. Right. So.
3: The villages I mean, are astounding because you're speaking about spending at least $1,000 per vote, I think, in some of these some of these recent races. It was well more than $1,000 a vote. And, I mean, knowing where that money is coming from is important. We, we had a, a story sort of
0: like that uh, that came to fruition uh, this past week too. Um, Amos Goodman, who was the um, Republican chair – for the South Ham- I'm sorry, for the East Hampton Town Republican Committee, uh, n- no longer in that role. But um, he was uh, sentenced this week to pay a fine and will spend 45 days, up to 45 days in jail. I think we the consensus is he'll spend about a month in jail. But he will be jailed um, after a plea agreement related to allegations that he falsified signatures on political, um, political uh, petitions. And I am happy to say that that it was our legwork, and particularly Michael Wright, our reporter in East Hampton, uh, when these allegations came out, um, he went out and did the shoe leather reporting, where he actually went to people whose names were on these petitions and asked them, did you sign this? And found out that in most cases, they said they did not sign. Uh, The irony being, of course, that this all came up because uh, Amos Goodman had made an allegation against another party's chair, Pat Manser, who uh, was an Independence Party, and and said that she was guilty of doing exactly this. But it's actually Amos who ended up being prosecuted for it. But you know, Beth, the, this is the shoe leather reporting yeah. that local news um, outlets do. That, that that there are the point I was trying to make earlier is there are transparencies in place. But they don't really do much if someone isn't isn't exploring. Yeah.
2: And and that shoe leather, it's it's tedious, it's time consuming, and you need like one person on it. And I mean, Michael's wonderful. He really works. He works the beat when you put him out there, and and that's uh, he did some great some great work there. Uh, but yeah, with, yeah, without journalists looking at it, nobody is going to. And I mean, we're very fortunate on the East End to have such a. Such a, a diverse and 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 gr- growing media environment. Most of this country doesn't have that right now.
0: No, that's absolutely true, and dedicated as yeah. well. And Brendan, you're you're the president of the Press Club of Long Island. This, I mean, this is, gets to the heart. You know, climb up on my soapbox for a second. This gets to the heart of why um, it's important for people to support their local uh, journalistic outlets. It's it, this is. This is where the rubber hits the road. Someone needs to be watching this stuff. And it gets harder and harder for news organizations to spend that kind of time and energy, doesn't it?
3: Well, what's interesting is as much as people hate cable news and say they hate the partisan news and the news cycle – They tend to love their local news, right? But a lot of people have cable. Not as many people subscribe to their local news outlet, which is kind of backwards, right? If you think that cable news is too partisan and it's too flashy and it's there for entertainment and to advance an agenda, uh, put your resources into your local news because your local news is covering what's happening on your block. And often when you watch uh, cable news, it's talking about how the news is going to affect the parties. And when you read the local news, it's really about how it's gonna affect you, how it's gonna affect your kids and your wallet, uh, your property taxes.
0: I just tip my hat to awesome. Denise
3: and and, and to, to
0: all the local journalists who do that. I think we have a great group out here who keep an eye on things and, and we do need the support of people um, to buy buy subscriptions. Support in any way you can. Absolutely. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, My co-host today is Brendan O'Reilly. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Beth, up on the North Fork, there is talk about hotels. (laughs) Tell us about it.
2: Well, um, I don't know if you guys know down on the South Fork, but the North Fork is very upset that... um, they think everybody from the South Fork is coming up there. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so busy down there. No one goes there anymore, I know. But, uh, I, you know, I can't get through the traffic to verify this. So I'll have to take your word for it. Um, so the, the North Fork is, is full of people, as is the South Fork. And um, we don't have a lot of hotels up here. Um, um, we don't have... Our, our, our aquifer is very delicate um which might be changing because uh, the water authority wants to bring uh, a main out to out to uh, Southold town um but that's infrastructure which is another discussion but hotels uh, there are three big hotel proposals um all along the main road corridor in Southold right now and uh one of them actually just got, that has been very controversial, just got uh, conditional approval from uh, the town, the South Old Town CBA, uh, the other day. Uh, it's called the Enclaves, and it's basically, it's like a six-acre property that they want to do a um, uh, an event space, a hotel, a restaurant. Um, and uh, so the, it, there was like a massive community outcry against this, but it's really so, some some Technicalities in the zoning code that make a lot of people's eyes glaze over, but it's really important is that basically hotels are a special exception use in a lot of these zoning districts, which means that you know you need to go to the zoning board of appeals for basically they look at it and say it meets all our criteria, we can give it approval, um, as opposed to getting a variance, which is a much you, you
0: have a right. To to build a hotel in some instances you just have to get this special exemption yeah and to, it's not as it.
2: hard as getting a variance but it's a really like technical right. thing that that is lost in translation a lot of times now there's another proposal down about ten miles up the road um, at the former Pe- uh, S- the, actually the recently reopened Peconic Bay Vineyard uh, across from the King Cullen and Cutshaw. And uh, that is a, a relatively large property that's being farmed by the... Uh, it's in, uh, planted in va- vines by the Soloviev Wealth family. Well, it was already planted in vines when they bought the property. They want to do a little boutique hotel there. It's actually the same size as the one in Southhold, um, but uh, it's on much greater acreage. But they basically need the same thing that the Southhold one needed. And um, then the former Capital One bank headquarters in Matatuck. Um, is also potentially um, going to be a hotel, and um, that's been sitting vacant for a very long time. And it's a big it's a big property. Um, yeah. you said there's
0: been community outcry about this. What about the at town hall? Do they are they generally supportive of the idea of having some more hotels?
2: Well, uh, Southwold started a comprehensive plan in 2010. A comprehensive plan update. Um, in which, like everyone at the time was saying, hey, we don't have enough hotels, so they put that in as the community input when they were drafting the comp plan. And then in the past couple of years, like the North Forks really had just a huge influx of people, and now people are saying, well, maybe we thought we wanted this, but we didn't. You know, a lot of the a lot of the um, tourist-based industries are like, yeah, we absolutely need people to stay here overnight. A lot of the traffic is. Um, Day trippers coming out to visit the farms and the wineries and whatnot, um, but the the price of a hotel room up here is is we we think it's astronomical. I don't know what you pay for a hotel room on the South Fork right now, but seven eight hundred dollars a night um, is not, not unheard of, um, and especially in what like wedding high wedding season. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean I don't think any of these are going to be any cheaper than what we already have um but it's definitely considered a need in the in the town's comprehensive plan so um
0: that's interesting cuz Denise, Denise I know that that in um Southampton town in particular and I believe this is also true in East Hampton town the absence of hotels was sort of by design I think the comprehensive plan um back in the late 90s early not uh, basically was positioned to say we do not want day trippers and transient visitors. This is an area for second homeowners, and we want to discourage day trippers and and people who are staying at hotels. So it was sort of by design that we don't have a lot of hotels on the South Fork. I'm not sure that is that the case on the North Fork, um, and it's certainly I, I'm guessing Riverhead has a slightly different attitude towards it.
1: Well, in, in the last uh, twenty years, uh, Riverhead—I mean, there have been several hotels built in Riverhead—and um, mm-hmm. um, there's, prob- Riverhead there's probably Riverhead has so much on the more way of way out. a. Sorry.
0: Yeah, you, you have so much more of a of a uh, business. Area there, that, I mean, that's sort of the primary business area for so much of the East End, So it sort of makes I mean, sense, you know, right? For,
1: for a long time, Joe, uh, there were no hotels. Really, there was a Holiday Inn on on the West Main Street that opened. What you know, closed down for a while. Um, there was there were there was a motel uh, on the traffic circle where it used to be the Howard Johnsons, and then became the Budget Host Inn. That was, um, mm-hmm. I think I could say, uh, kind of <laughs> probably still a seedy kind of place that you wouldn't necessarily stay at. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of full time residents, et cetera, there. And um, so it, there was definitely a need for hotel rooms because there was just really weren't any all around. And so um, there was a, a group that came in and converted the Holiday Inn to the Hotel Indigo, which is a very nice hotel um then of course the mm-hmm. Hyatt Place East End got built on East Main Street and the people that own that built a boutique hotel across the way the Preston House um that's a very pricey place but then there are like the more kind of standard locations like the you know Hilton Garden Inn and um Holiday Inn Express on Route 58 um and also now we have a Residence Inn there so um you know, there's a, a variety of options in hotels in, in Riverhead. Um, and, you know, that I don't th- I don't know this for sure, but I don't think any of them command, you know, seven or eight hundred dollars a night, even in the high season. However, you know, they are if you want a hotel in the summer, you you know, you got to book it in the winter, kind of like it's, you know, yeah. um, the, even though we've got all these rooms and I can't tell you how many off the top of my head, but um, they fill up. And they're filling up with people who are visiting the region, people who are going to uh, weddings on the North Fork or people who are doing things on the South Fork. Um, you know, they they go back to the hotel in Riverhead. Um, so um, yeah. yeah, it's
0: Brenda. Brenda, down here on the South Fork, it's mostly sort of boutique hotels, um, some smaller hotels. Um, some of them historic, like the American Hotel, uh, but you it's, it's been mostly sort of a scattering of boutique hotels. But what's interesting to me as a Hampton Bays resident is that as the Canoe Place Inn goes, goes up, and that's going to be sort of a mecca for big events, I think, once it gets up and running. And they have a couple of uh, rental properties. I, I think it's going to be sort of little cottages that you can rent. On the site, but I'm not sure what's going to happen if if Hampton Bays becomes sort of a destination wedding mm. place. Uh, it's going to be tricky to find hotel rooms for
3: everybody. Well, the the upside of something like that is because they are supplying the hotel and they're <laughs> supplying the wedding venue those people come in and they probably stay for one night to be at the wedding and then they clear out. So you will have vacancies for other nights of the week to get some tourists in. But it's not like they're going to throw a wedding and fill up any available hotel space in town because they're adding hotel space. And speaking of pricing, um, I got this pitch the other day that was come work from a hotel and it was supposed to be the wonders of you know, renting a hotel room in the Hamptons while not on vacation and actually just working remotely, which doesn't sound fun to me. But a no, room, their they're very standard basic room, $500 a night on a weeknight in December or January is the cheapest. And it's $600 a night for a weekend or $700 a night for a holiday weekend. And if you actually compare to July and August, their Saturdays and their Fridays are already booked. And if you want to stay on a Wednesday in August, it's $1,100 a night. So, you know, <laughs> there, there, there are no hotels on the South Fork for normal people. Um, you know, maybe occasionally you'll get a normal person who will come out specifically for a wedding and stay at a hotel, but they're staying for a night. They're not... They're not and, staying for a week, and then
2: they're going to hate the people whose wedding they give to after they pay for the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious I'm what's so the status
1: rude. of like local codes when it comes to um, rentals by the night or the weekend in private homes on the you know I, I'm familiar with. Like, I was just say, I
0: think Airbnb, hmm. Airbnb is taking up a big yeah, chunk of, of that.
3: A lot of uh-huh. municipalities have a two week minimum. So they try to cut down on how many transients you could have in your house and cut down on share houses, make sure it's not different guests every single weekend throwing a party and that there's no overcrowding. And in some municipalities, the two week minimum says you could only rent for two weeks twice a year. So uh, they are trying to make it so these communities are second homeowner communities and not transient communities. And Airbnb on the North Fork is, is a huge thing on the North Fork as well. On the South Fork, you'll see a lot of people trying to use Airbnb to rent a house for a month as opposed to going through a traditional real estate agent. But on the North Fork, for those weddings at the vineyards and for people that want to have bachelorette parties and what have you, Airbnbs are a huge way that that demand is being accommodated yeah. right now. They're,
2: they're there. And, and there is a, there is a minimum, but, um, that's always a matter of enforcement. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riverhead mm-hmm.
1: enacted a 28 day minimum several years ago. Um, but Bye. there are people that just completely disregard that the town is in court right now, actually went the Supreme court with, um, a place that operates in Aquabog. Uh, that call he calls it Victorville. Um, and they are and they are in, uh, they're in su- state Supreme Court trying to, you know, enforce the law. And um, the uh, defendant in that case is being represented by the uh, our state senator.
0: Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um,
2: uh, you know, and,
0: and, and this <laughs> This all does sort of interconnect with with affordable housing because some of the hotels had become affordable housing for a time. Mm -hmm. Brendan, um, we had a story this week uh, that you did. You went to the opening – the groundbreaking, I should say, of a project in Riverside uh, for five houses that are going to go up on a block in Riverside that are being built by the – Habitat for Humanity and the Southampton Housing Authority.
3: Yes, this is a this is a big deal. Five houses from Habitat for Humanity in conjunction with the town. It's not something you see that often uh, uh, because these are home ownership opportunities. Whereas a lot of uh, the past affordable housing we've seen, you'll get maybe one home home ownership opportunity at a time, where you get something like uh, Spionk Commons and Sandy Hollow, which is multiple rental units. This is five home ownership opportunities rising at the same time. We'll probably see people moving in in 2023 if all goes well. But what happened here is this is through Suffolk County 72H program, which utilizes uh, a state law that allows them to take excess real estate and turn it over to municipalities to create affordable housing. So this would have been property that was seized by the county for delinquent taxes and... There was one house on the property, but that house is uninhabitable. Uh, there really was no hope of rehabbing it, uh, especially when they have goals of making these houses handicap accessible. So anybody could potentially move in right away or anybody that does buy them has the opportunity to age in place. So at this groundbreaking, they started with tearing down this one house. And now there's going to be a couple of houses facing Vale Avenue, a couple of houses facing old quag road they 're going to back up to each other, and because of the way Habitat for Humanity works, people put in sweat equity on their own houses and on other people 's houses so you 're going to have people working to build each other 's houses and then living next door to each other or ba- or backyard to backyard adjacent to each other so uh, it was mentioned at the groundbreaking that there's going to be a tremendous sense of community there, and the way that Habitat for Humanity works is they will. Not give away the houses like people think they do. They'll give you an affordable mortgage, which means that you will never pay more than 30% of your annual income towards your mortgage. If you're paying more than 30% of your annual income towards your mortgage, that's considered housing stress by the um, Housing and Urban Development um, Federal Agency. So if your income goes up fairly fast, you'll pay more if your income stays as low as it was when you moved in. Uh, You don't need to worry about your payments inflating on you. So these people can afford these houses. They could actually benefit from some equity. Uh, Normally with Habitat for Humanity, uh, they'll just have the right of first refusal if they decide to buy your house and keep it in their program or if they just want to let you sell it on the open market. But they do give people the opportunity to build equity and create generational wealth, which is uh, really what homeownership does for people in this country. Uh, But because of the 72H program, these properties will need to stay in affordable housing for perpetuity. So if these ever get sold and resold, they have to be sold to somebody else who is income qualified.
0: Brendan, there's a uh, narrative out there that these affordable housing projects have to basically be opened up to a larger community uh, and so end up not being for local people. I don't think the numbers tend to show that 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 happens, right?
3: You will see that an overwhelming amount of people who apply are people who are local, um, especially like if you're on the Southampton town list, you probably have some affiliation with Southampton town, right? Habitat for Humanity, they got, uh, I think it was around 70, 72 um, applications For just these five houses in Riverside, but Habitat for Humanity is helping people all over Suffolk County. So they really could be from anywhere. But when you get down to the brass tacks of of who actually uh, ends up purchasing these houses rather than who applied, uh, you will see people that work locally. And even if they didn't have local jobs before, at the rate that somebody does get a house in Flanders, They're going to want to have a job that is in close proximity to where they live, even if they didn't have that job before. And it is one of the questions about affordable housing that a lot of times it's called workforce housing, but it's not necessarily workforce housing when it is open up to everybody because it's open up to retirees and it's open up to people who might be on disability. So they're uh, not going to be working full-time jobs, but they are eligible for affordable housing opportunities.
0: you know there's a this is just an ongoing issue and there's a rally that's planned for this weekend in sag harbor by the local group that's yimby which is yes in my backyard uh which is an affordable housing a pro affordable housing group uh so um it's an issue that's obviously in great conversation the uh coming year we're going to have probably votes on the community housing fund uh that are going to take place locally so it's going to continue to be an issue of uh Big concern locally. Uh, we are essentially out of time. Uh, I want to thank all of our panelists today, Denise Civiletti and Beth Young. Thank you to both of you guys. I uh, appreciate you taking some time thank to talk you. with us. Pleasure. And thank you to Brendan O'Reilly, who pinch it for Bill Sutton today as my co-host. Thank you, Brendan. Appreciate it. Anytime, Joe. <laughs> Uh, I'm Joe Shaw, the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, we will be back next week, as always, with a fresh panel and uh, more discussion about the headlines on Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Thanks for joining us and see you next week.